You heard our text from Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus read. And here's what I came to say to you today in a sentence. Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. Can I say that again? Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. Now, when I was first assigned this topic, hell is real, the very first thing that I thought of was a story that I heard Bob Russell tell about a a 25-year-old young lady who had broken off her engagement, and she came to her mother tearfully to explain what had happened. She said, Mother, "Mother, I, I can't marry him. He's not really a Christian. I found out he doesn't believe in hell. Well, this determined mother, she set her jaw, she dried the tears from her daughter's eyes, she patted her daughter's hand, and she said, oh dear, you go ahead and marry him, we'll teach him to believe in hell. (laughs) That's the first thing I thought of. The second thing I thought of was this, I have a preacher friend who says that if, if you end up going to hell, the first thing you hear when you walk through the gates of hell is this, here's your cat. (laughs) He doesn't like cats to do aerobics in hell. And and then I thought of that Disney movie, Hercules, you remember, with the wisecracking bad guy, Hades. And then I remembered a a best-selling book title I once saw in an airport. The book was called, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And it didn't take long for me to realize this truth. In our culture, the primary emotion that people feel about hell is amusement. We laugh at hell. A.J. Conyers is a Christian author. He tells about a time that he took a tour of a historic old colonial village in South Carolina. A young historian was leading the tour. He was a gifted lecturer. He was recreating in their minds what this city would have looked like back in the 1700s. And at one point, this young historian took them into the churchyard of an old Anglican church, gathered them around in a cemetery around a tombstone for some man named James Postel. And this young historian pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket And he said this, he said, imagine that we were here when James Postel was was buried. As they lowered him into the ground, we would have heard these words read from the 1768 Book of Common Prayer. And, And with mock seriousness, he read the words, man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live. He adjusted his glasses and then he really hammed it up. In the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom may we seek help, but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins is justly displeased. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our heart. Shut not thy merciful ears from our prayers. Spare us, suffer us not at our last hour to fall from thee. And then, and then, the historian smiled at them, and he winked. And why did he wink? A.J. Conyers writes this. He winked because he knew that we shared a secret. James Postel, may he rest in peace, would never have understood this secret, but we did. The secret we shared was this. We no longer took such otherworldly fears seriously. The idea of a, of a judgment for a sinful life, the fear that we could somehow just jeopardize our eternal state. These topics are not a part of common, polite, serious conversation these days. Oh, we understood the wink. And the primary emotion in our culture that people feel about an eternal place of punishment is amusement. We live in a world that winks at hell. Now, Ozark Christian College is a Jesus school. We as Christians are Jesus people. And if there is anything that Jesus teaches us, it is this. Hell is nothing to wink at. 
Every single New Testament writer speaks about hell, but Jesus spoke about hell more than all of the New Testament writers combined. Jesus clearly believed hell is real. In Revelation chapter 20, we learn that hell is a place that Jesus has prepared to punish the devil and his angels, but we also learn that it's a place to punish wicked humanity, people who rebel against Christ. And, and what does Jesus exactly teach us about this place called hell? At least these three things. First of all, Jesus teaches us hell will be a place of terrible physical suffering. Mark 9, Jesus says there will be worms, maggots that eat your body continuously. Matthew 24, Jesus says that you will be cut into pieces. In our parable, Luke 16, rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in such fiery pain that he begs for Lazarus just to, just to dip the tip of his finger in water and touch his tongue to bring him some relief. Now, there's a common question. Are all these images, are they literal? I mean, will people really be cut up? Will they really be eaten by worms in hell? Will there really be fire? I, I, I thought hell was supposed to be darkness. How can there be both fire and darkness? Is, Tim Keller is a preacher who lives in New York City. And he says that when people ask him what he believes about hell, he says uh, his, his answer usually goes like this. Well, first thing I'd say is the biblical imagery of fire is, is probably metaphorical. And they always go, whew. And then he says, it's probably metaphorical for something way worse. <laughs> and maybe, maybe there will be literal fire in hell. God could certainly figure out a way to make fire burn and still keep it dark. But if the fire language is symbolic, it's because the reality will be more awful than human words can possibly capture. Jesus is clear. There will be terrible physical suffering. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Jesus says that hell is a place of spiritual ruin. Spiritual ruin. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that your soul will be, here's the word, destroyed in hell. Someday you'll have a physical death, but in hell you will have a spiritual death. It's called the second death in Scripture. Now, now what does all that mean? Does that mean that, that, that when our soul, if a soul goes to hell, that, that it would eventually burn up, that it would like cease to exist? There are some Christians that believe this. It's a, a teaching called annihilationism. It's a belief that after a, a time of suffering that, that people in hell will at some point just poof, they will cease to be. They will be gone. They will be no more. But that's not what the Greek word destroy there in Matthew chapter 10. That's not what that word means. It doesn't mean something ceases to exist. It means that something is ruined. That something can't be what it's supposed to be. So do a word study on this in the Bible. That word destroy is used of barren farmland that can't grow crops anymore. It's used of rotten wineskins that can't hold wine anymore. It's used of spilled perfume that can't be worn anymore. None of these things cease to exist, but they can no longer be what they were made to be. One time, one time I accidentally uh, ran over my cell phone with my car. I am an idiot. And it did not cease to exist. It was destroyed because it could no longer be what it was intended to be. Listen, that's what happens to your soul in hell. Right now, right now on earth, I am this mixture of good and bad. I'm a mixture of vice and virtue. Steve Brown, is a, he's a preacher down in Florida, and he said one time after he got done preaching, a lady came up to him and she said, she said, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of preachers say that they were sinners, but you're the first one I ever believed. <laughs> <laughs> you can believe me here today when I tell you that I am a sinner, but the good news is this. That when I get to heaven, all of those bad things will be redeemed out, and all that will be left are the good parts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I will be my true self, my best self, the Matt Proctor that God always intended for me to be. But listen, people in hell become their worst self. All of the good parts are gone. 
Did you notice that the rich man in our parable, Luke 16, when, when, he, when he calls up Abraham, when he hits up Abraham on the hell hotline, all right, what does he actually ask Abraham? Does he ask Abraham to get out of hell? Does he ask if he can go to heaven? No. What does he do? He asks for Lazarus to come down to hell. He, he still treats Lazarus like dirt. He treats him like his servant. He's like, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this. And tell Lazarus to do that. And he hasn't learned his lesson at all. He's not like, oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry that I mistreated you in life. No, this guy is still the same self-centered piece of garbage he was on earth, only like more so. And that's spiritual ruin in hell. You will be all your worst parts, the selfish, greedy, arrogant, hateful, cowardly pieces that you hate about yourself right now. That's all that will be left. That's spiritual ruin and finally, Jesus says this in hell. He says it's a place of relational abandonment. Mark Twain one time said this, go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. And there's a popular idea in our culture that hell, oh sure, it will be hot, but it's just, it'll be kind of like a bar with no air conditioning. I mean, yeah, you know, it'll be a little sweaty, but you get to hang out with your buddies, you know, you know just a big sweaty Miller time. Nope. In hell, you will be utterly alone, banished, Matthew chapter 22. You are cast out into outer darkness. We as humans, we, we are social creatures. We are made for connection. We are made for relationship. But in hell, you will be cut off from all relationship. And worst of all, you will be cut off from God himself, Luke chapter 13. Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. In our parable, Luke 16, Abraham says to the rich man, he says, a great chasm has been set between us. You can't come here, we can't go there. Hell is solitary confinement in darkness no visitors, no conversation, sorry, in reality, there is no hell hotline, there is no one to talk to. In hell, you will be utterly alone forever. Physical suffering, spiritual ruin, relational abandonment, hell is not a thing to be winked at. It is horror. Now, right here is where a lot of Christians don't know how to respond. You see, truth isn't something that, just something that you believe. Truth is something that you also feel. And a lot of Christians don't know how to feel emotionally about hell. You see, if, if the world's primary emotion about hell is amusement, the church's primary emotion about hell is embarrassment. Well, they believe it, but they just don't like it. And they don't want to think about it, and they don't want to talk about it, and they don't really want to hear sermons about it, and they haven't figured out how to process it. God, how? I don't like that. My neighbor, my grandpa, my coworker, how can you send them to hell? I, I know he's not a Christian, but he's a good guy. He pays his taxes, he loves his wife, he volunteers at the shelter. That doesn't seem right. But you listen to me, the Bible says all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that, that doesn't just mean that they broke God's rules, although we've all done that. No, the essence of sin is this. It is building your life around anything else except God. And every single person you have ever met has done that. And that, pure and simple, is rebellion. It might be subtle, it might be covert, it might be a very nice rebellion. But if someone chooses to live their life away from the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit and the rule of God, if they insist on living their life with their self, their very nice self, seated on the throne, they are rebels. And they have chosen to live a life Apart from God, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The damned are simply successful rebels. They, they will enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. And in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
All that are in hell, choose it. Listen to me. Hell is not unfair. Hell is not unjust. Hell is not pleasant, but it is not evil. Hell is a moral good, and this might shock you to hear, but it is true. The doctrine of hell is a gift from God. It is a hard gift to be sure, but it is a gift, and our reaction should not be amusement, and it should not be embarrassment. Our emotional response to hell should be gratitude. Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. So in the rest of the time that I have, can I do this? Can I, can I show you four reasons why I am grateful for the doctrine of hell? Here's the first. I'm grateful for the doctrine of hell because it encourages me with God's justice. We are made, every one of us, in the image of God, and our soul longs for justice. When we see someone who is being done wrong, we want that to be made right. My daughter Lydia is 23. She is a, a strong, proud, beautiful, fierce woman. She, she's been a, an MC for, for CIY, and she's preached on stage to thousands of people, and she's, she is a confident lady, but not when she was in junior high. Nobody's confident when they're in junior high, and that was especially true of Lydia. Back then, Lydia wore uh, glasses. Uh, Lydia had to wear these expanders in her mouth to get her mouth ready for races, and they made her talk with a list in junior high. And at that point, Lydia would tell you she was bigger than most of the girls in her class. And when Lydia started junior high, she was the new girl in school. She had been homeschooled, you see, up until that point. And so she didn't know anybody there at the school. And, and being homeschooled, she was kind of clueless about, about teen culture and about fashion. I was talking to her on the phone this weekend, and she reminded me of this. Bless, bless her heart. <laughs> she would wear these matching velour track suits to school, lime green. <laughs> On the phone this weekend, I, I apologized to her. I said, I'm sorry, Lydia. I should have said something. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I know, I, I thought they were cool, but she quickly figured out the kids at school did not think they were cool. Now, you know this about junior hires, right? You know that junior hires are pre-human beings. You know this to be true, <laughs> all right? They are not actual people yet. They are, they're in that developmental stage called being a jerk. Junior hires are brutal. That's what they are. And, and at, the, at the Web City Junior High, there was this group of boys who decided to make Lydia their target. They were led by a kid named Cameron because, of course, it's always a kid named Lance or Cameron. I'm right. And Cameron made it his mission in life to target Lydia. He mocked her with his buddies. They called her all kinds of names every day. They did this for two years. And Lydia, Lydia just took it. Now, if you knew her today, Lydia is spit and fire and attitude on a stick, and she would not take it. But back then, little awkward junior high Lydia, she didn't say anything. She never told any of her teachers. She never told us. She just let them bully the crud out of her until, until. One day near the end of her eighth grade year, it had been two years of this now, and one day, it was after lunch, she was walking from the cafeteria back down to her locker, walking through this commons area in her school before class started again, and all the kids there are hanging out, and Lydia walks past Cameron and all of, her, all of his buddies, and Cameron calls out for everybody to hear, he calls her a name. It was a rude name, it was a crass word, I will not repeat it. And on that day, something in Lydia snapped. Lydia had had enough. She could feel a power surging up within her. It was Hulk rage. <laughs> Maybe it was the green tracksuit. I don't know. But she, 
she was no longer meek and mild-mannered Bruce Banner. No, all of a sudden she whipped around. She walked right up to Cameron. I kid you not. She cocked her arm back and boom, she punched him right in the face. Hulk smash, all right? Woo! Now Cameron, Cameron was stunned. And his friends were stunned, and all the onlookers were stunned, and Cameron didn't know what to do. He didn't hit her back, but he, he kind of he pushed her away, and Lydia just took a step right back at him, and she said this. She said, you can tell on me if you want to, but I don't care. I'm tired of you making fun of me. Stop it. And then she just turned around, and she walked off. Cameron never did tell the principal. Cameron never did call Lydia a name again. Two weeks later, Cameron wrote her a note apologizing, and at the end of the semester, Cameron moved away and never came back. That's true. Now, when I learned all of this later, I felt two things. Number one, I felt angry. Now, that kid was messing with my daughter. And number two, I felt deeply satisfied that she punched him in the face. <laughs> I'm telling you, there is something in the human soul that longs for justice. When we see a wrong that is being done, we want the wrongdoer punished, and we want the wrong made right. But so often in this world, we read the stories, we see the news, there is no justice. Tragedies. Little boys kidnapped as child soldiers, little girls sold into human trafficking, women abused, poor, victimized, people of other races mistreated. Babies killed in their own mother's wombs. Drug dealers enslaving others in addiction. School shooters, serial killers, child molesters, genocidal dictators. Governments that attack Christians and burn down their churches. Terrorists who behead believers because of their faith. And something in our spirit cries out, Lord, that's not right. Do something. And the good news of the doctrine of hell is this. He will. Because a day is coming when Jesus will come riding back on his white war horse, a sword coming out of his mouth, Revelation 19, 11, and he will make war and judge with justice, it says. He will take every last one of those wicked men and he will take Satan himself, the bully of this world that has been messing with the people that he loves, and he will throw them into the lake of fire forever. And it is not wrong in that moment to feel a sense of holy satisfaction. I am grateful that hell is real because when evil runs rampant in this world I am encouraged that the justice of God is coming here's the second reason I'm grateful for the doctrine of hell it protects me from God's punishment it protects me from God's punishment Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 Jesus said be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell fear of God Sometimes, sometimes fear is a legitimate motivation for obedience. I, I have a confession to make to you here this morning. I am not a patient person. Specifically, I am not a patient driver. A few weeks back, I counted them up. I have speeding tickets from at least seven different states. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that is not good, okay? <laughs> I'm not proud of that, you understand? I, I, I don't know what to say. I think, I think when I got baptized, I think my right foot got left out of the water. My, my accelerator foot never got saved. It's a heathen, man. What can I say? Right. And by the way, can I just say this? Kansas is the worst. All right? Jeez. Kansas, Kansas is like Oprah, you know, you know, you get a speeding ticket, you get a speeding ticket, you get a speeding ticket. 
Sometimes I drive the speed limit because I want to be a safe driver, but sometimes when I'm driving through Kansas, I drive the speed limit because I am afraid of getting another ticket. Sometimes I pay my taxes because I love my country. Sometimes I pay my taxes because I'm afraid of the penalty. penalty. Sometimes, sometimes I obey God because I genuinely love God. And sometimes I obey him because I am afraid of his punishment. Fear is meant to be the last line of defense that keeps me from falling away from God. Listen, the Bible, the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of eternal security, this idea that somehow you can never lose your salvation. It doesn't teach eternal insecurity either. You don't have to wake up every day wondering whether you're saved or not. Am I am or am I out? God's grace is huge. It's big. It's big. And it's very hard to lose your salvation, but it is possible. And I know my own heart. I know how easy it is for me to get caught up in sin. And I need Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. If you call your brother a fool, you are in danger of the fires of hell. If you lust, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew 25. If you ignore the poor, the hungry, the prisoner... You are in danger of the fires of hell. Revelation chapter 3. If you have a lukewarm faith, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus is not some kindly grandfather who will tussle your hair when you misbehave. Oh, boys will be boys. He is not some smiling buddy who will wink at your sin. He is Lord and he is king and he is judge and his judgment is not something to laugh at. I should be afraid. And it was about four weeks ago that I got up very early one morning. And I went out into my living room and I sat in my chair and I took out my computer and I, I opened up the portal to the student directory and I looked at every single one of your pictures, all 682 of you. And I prayed over every single one of your names because there is a thought that haunts me. I have been at this school for 28 years and I know there will be a few former Ozark Christian College students in hell someday. And I don't want it to be you. And I don't want it to be me. And I am grateful for the doctrine of hell because it protects me and keeps me from the punishment of God. Here's a third reason that I'm grateful for this doctrine. It keeps me on God's mission. The doctrine of hell keeps me on God's mission. If I'm, if I'm not careful, I can be lazy in the Great Commission. Anybody here with me? But when I remember that all the people around me, they really are going to hell without Jesus, it purges my soul of complacency, and it makes me a bolder evangelist. When I was a student here at Ozark, um, I was a youth minister at a church here in town. I had a young lady in my youth group named Helen. Helen... Um, one day came in and she told me she wanted to give her life to Christ. I said, that's great. Let's, let's study the Bible. Let's see what that looks like. Give me your address. And, and, and so she gave me her address. It was actually the address for her older brother Keith's house. I said, great, I'll come by uh, Wednesday, 4 o'clock. Now, Helen came from a very rough family background, both of her parents, alcoholics, a lot of fighting conflict. And so she had moved out of the house, and she was living with her older brother Keith. And so that Wednesday, 4 o'clock, got in my car, and, and I went down to, to this address she had given me. Now, you know there are some rough neighborhoods in Joplin. And when I pulled up in front of this old yellow house, it was one of the rough neighborhoods. Now, what you need to understand is that back then, I brought a picture with me. I want you to see this picture. Back then, I was the skinny, goofy, uh, Bible college kid from Iowa, still had hair, you can see. Um, and, and look at me. I am a young Mr. Rogers. Can you see that? All right. <laughs> I am not an intimidating person. And I am, I am in this rough neighborhood there. And, and I'm just telling you, I was a little scared. I was a little nervous. I walked up the steps to this old yellow house, and I knocked on the door, and the door swung open, and there stood Keith, big guy, long hair, bandana around his head, tattoos up and down his arms. He had a tattoo of a knife on his arm. 
And I'm trying, you know, I'm trying really hard not to judge, not to judge. I'm like, okay, all right, a knife. Uh, maybe he's a chef, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling you, I'm scared. And he's standing at the door. He has a pipe wrench in his hand, right? He says, come in. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> He'd been working on his bathroom. He went back to work on his bathroom. I went, sat down at the kitchen table, started studying the Bible with Helen. I would go back every Wednesday afternoon. I got to know Keith. I found out Keith was he's, he's a pretty good dude. Married, two kids, um, dropped out of high school when he was 16, worked hard every day at a local factory. He did not drink. He did not do drugs. He smoked. He smoked like a chimney. But he, he really did look after his little sister, Helen, giving her a better place to live. Keith loved um, muscle cars. He had this old Plymouth Barracuda that was parked out in front of his house, house and, and he would work on it. And I know nothing about cars, um, but I would stand there and I would just hand him tools. And over the next several months, um, Keith and I, we developed this kind of odd friendship. You got this long-haired tattoo factory guy. You got this short-haired, sweater-wearing Bible college kid. And this, this was 1992. I'll never forget, Keith had been, he'd been sick all summer. And finally, in August, he decided that he better go to the doctor. And when he came back from the doctor, he had the right diagnosis, lung cancer. And the doctor said, you've got about six weeks. 29 years old, two kids and a wife. And as soon as I heard that, I went over. I said, man, Keith, I am so sorry. And whatever I can do, man, I'm, I'm, I'm here. We're, we're here. And we were. I mean, we would bring groceries over. He, he started chemo, and we'd watch his kids. And, and you know, his hair fell, fell out, and he got real sick, and he, he got skinny, and he was on an oxygen tank. And every time I would walk up to that old yellow house, I mean, I could tell he was really going to die. I'd think to myself, I ought to tell him. He knew I was a Christian, but I, I had never just straight up shared the gospel with him. Jude 23 says, save others by snatching them from the fire. I, I knew what awaited Keith, but for whatever reason, I just, I couldn't get the words out. And finally, one day I came home to Katie and I said, Katie, we got we to gotta pray that God will give me the words and God will give me the boldness. And we got down on on our knees in our living room, we just prayed that God would help me. And I went back to the house and I sat down by Keith and I said, Keith, Keith, can I ask you, do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? No. Well, can I tell you what's going to happen to me after I die? Sure. And I told him about my hope of heaven that I had in Jesus and he wanted to know more. And so I got a Bible for him. He wasn't a very good reader, so I, I, I got an easy-to-read Bible. I highlighted a bunch of verses for him, and he would just read those verses over and over and over again, but pretty soon he was so weak, he couldn't even hold that Bible up. And so I took over that movie, the Jesus film, uh, the story of Jesus' life, and, and he would just watch that movie over and over and over again about just Jesus who loved all kinds of guys, even guys like him. I'll never forget the day. It was a Wednesday. It was a November Wednesday. It was the day right before Thanksgiving. That Keith decided that he wanted to give his life to Jesus Christ. He was so weak, I had to baptize him right there in his own bathtub. And three weeks later to the day, I preached his funeral. Now, I will always be grateful that, that Keith came to faith, but you listen to me. I almost missed my chance. At that point, I was probably the only person in the world who could tell Keith what he so desperately needed to hear, and I almost didn't do it, but it was the reality of hell that urged me on. Who's your Keith? I'm grateful for this doctrine of hell because it keeps me on task in the mission of God. Can I, can I mention one more? I'm grateful for the doctrine of hell because it reminds me of the love of God. A lot of Christians think that the doctrine of hell is antithetical to the love of God, that somehow these two things are in contradiction. But you hear me, hear me, Ozark. You can't understand God's love unless you understand the doctrine of hell. 
You can't appreciate your salvation until you know the, how terrible is the tragedy that you have been saved from. Yes. One last story and I'm done. My wife Katie, she's the children's minister at our church here in Joplin. And, and several years ago now, she and I, we took a group of her kids um, from her children's ministry, 15, 20 kids, to, uh, to Forest Park Baptist Church here in town. Um, it was almost Easter. They were putting on a great big passion play. And so we, we got there early to the church, about an hour, so that we could get good seats up in the balcony, right in the front row, good place for the kids uh, to look down. And, and that year, in our children's ministry, we had a bunch of un, unchurched kids. A neighbor uh, brought them, and we loved having them, but they were, they were pretty rough kids. They were kind of street kids. And, and let's just say that sitting quietly for an hour waiting for this show to start, not their spiritual gift. Now, it was, it was a Friday night. It had been a long week. I was very tired. I'm just being honest. I was a little grumpy, and I was riding herd on this rough little third grade boy named David. And David, David was kind of being a little jerk. He kept, he kept harassing all the other kids, and he kept whacking them on the arm, and he kept mouthing off, and he kept cussing, and he kept telling dirty jokes. I, I heard about a substitute teacher one time who had a very um, loud, rowdy first grade class. And so about an hour into the school day, the principal comes to check on her and he is amazed. All of the kids are silent. It's quiet. And he's like, wow, how, how did you do that? And she said, well, I, I gave all the kids uh, glue sticks and I told them it was lip balm. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give David lip balm. Are you following me here? All right. But instead, this is what I did. Uh, David and I went downstairs, and we sat on the back row on the ground level. David on my lap, my, my arms clamped around him to keep him still. Finally, the lights went down. And within moments, he was captivated. His eyes wide with wonder. David had just started coming to our church, and David had never heard the story of Jesus. And so as this play began to unfold there in the dark, he was seated on my lap and he kept turning to ask me questions. And slowly, slowly, I began to see this very familiar story through the fresh eyes of David. Mr. Matt, Mr. Matt, why, why did he say that? Mr. Matt, how did, how did he make that man better? And Jesus came down the aisle bearing his cross just inches from where we were sitting, the actor bloodied and unrecognized. Mr. Matt, is that still Jesus? Yes, David. And when they brought Jesus up onto the stage and they threw him down on the cross and the soldiers began to pound the nails into his hand, David turned to me on my lap in genuine grief and he said, Mr. Matt, why? Why are those soldiers doing that? Why are they killing Jesus? And I tried to explain. I said, I said David, Jesus let those men kill him to take the punishment for our sins. You see, those other two men on the cross, they, they were criminals. They died for the bad things they did. But Jesus died for the bad things we did. And David said to me with tears running down his cheeks, that's not fair. And I said, you're right, David. It's not fair. But he did that because he loved us. And what David could never have understood at his age, but what I knew was how truly unfair it was. I, I knew what it cost Jesus. Jesus literally endured hell. Physical suffering. Oh, the scourging, the beating, the crown of thorns, the nails by his wounds. We are healed. Spiritual ruin. Jesus was not his true self on that cross, pure and perfect. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
and relational abandonment. As he was hung between heaven and earth alone, all of his followers scattered, abandoned him, but that was not the worst moment, no. The worst moment when was God, God his Father looked down from heaven and he saw his once pure and perfect son now covered with all the sins of all of humanity for all of history, this great, huge, black, writhing mass of evil on Jesus and, and he could no longer stand the sight of his own son. And as the sky grew dark at noon on that Good Friday, the old gospel preachers used to say that was God turning his back on Jesus. And that's why Christ cried out on the cross, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from his own father because he would not cut us off. He endured hell so that we could have heaven. And your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for heaven. 